Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U A I. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. I am so excited to welcome today's guest to the show. He holds a computer science PhD from Berkeley, which he completed in four years while also working at OpenAI as a research scientist. He worked on robotic perception and control culminating in the famous Rubik's Cube robot hand video. He co-organizes the phenomenal full-stack deep learning course and is now working on a new stealth startup. Please welcome Josh Tobin. Josh, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Great. Excited to be here. And I really do mean that the full-stack deep learning course is phenomenal. It's pretty much my go-to resource when any engineer asks me they want to start getting into machine learning engineering. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was it was a uh, a labor of love. It came from a lot of painful lessons that Sergey, Peter, and I learned over the years. So if it can if it can save people that same time and pain, then then it was worth our effort. Yeah, definitely. And the first question I always ask our guests are, how were you first exposed to computer science, and what made you decide to pursue it? Yeah, how was I first exposed to computer science? I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure I like played around with some, some programming stuff in high school, but it was really in college when I started to think more seriously about it. I took kind of an intro to 
programming class, um, just kind of the, the 101 type class. But I was really more focused on math at the time. I was studying pure math, doing algebraic topology, number theory, not theory, like all of the all the most fun but most useless stuff that that you can think of. I remember really enjoying computer science, but it, thinking of it more as like a, a distraction at the time from what I really wanted to do. So really didn't study much computer science at all in college. And then it wasn't until grad school when I came back to school and I was trying to figure out like what what useful stuff I wanted to do with math that I really started to dive into it. You worked at McKinsey for a few years before going back to grad school. How did you make that decision or why did you make that decision to go pursue a PhD? Well, I think the reason that I went to McKinsey to begin with was that I, I like I mentioned, I'd been studying math and really wanted to be a mathematician for a long time, but had kind of this crisis of confidence before my senior year of college where I was doing research the whole summer. And I remember I was, I was living in this tiny dorm room in Manhattan, basically just a bed and a whiteboard. And that was it. And I spent basically the whole summer waking up, walking down the street to grab a coffee, coming back and then staring at the whiteboard for the whole day. And it was great. And I was having fun, but I, I remember just kind of realizing that if I went down that path, then this wouldn't be too far from my life, right? I would be working on these problems that were really interesting to me intrinsically, but ultimately, even if you solve them, maybe a handful of people in the world would actually care about it. And I just kind of asked myself the question of, is this really, is this really what I want to dedicate my life to? And so I, I realized that it wasn't, I wasn't cut out for that path. And so I was going into my senior year of college. I hadn't really learned a lot of practical skills. And so I started applying to jobs and consulting appealed to me because I, I was interested in leadership. I was excited about what it would take to, to, to run organizations. And I didn't really know what field or what path I wanted to go down. And so consulting is kind of like, consulting draws you in if you fit that profile, right? Like kind of ambitious, not really sure what you want to do with your life. Mm-hmm. So I applied to, and also it, it doesn't, doesn't hurt that consulting was like one of the first industries to recruit on campus. So I applied to those jobs, ended up getting an offer at a place that I was really excited about. And so that's kind of how I ended up doing that. And I, I actually really enjoyed consulting. I, it, the, the thing that it really taught me was that we, we worked on a lot of problems that were really hard in a very different way than the types of problems I was used to solving in math, right? In consulting, sometimes you work on problems that are really conceptually challenging, but most of the time, like the, the right answer in the abstract, if you have like the right data and the right information, the right answer is not that hard to figure out. It's kind of just common sense and a little bit of modeling, a little bit of expert knowledge maybe. But the thing that makes it tricky is that you're never operating in a circumstance where you have access to, to perfect information, right? You're, you're, always, you're always missing some data. You need a, there's someone that you need to convince to give you that data maybe. And then even if you get the right answer, it's all for nothing if you're if your client right like if, if the company that you're working with decides not to implement that answer and so you're always solving for sort of the people problems as well as what is objectively the right answer so that that was that was I really enjoyed that I learned a ton of things that I had never been exposed to but ultimately when I was thinking about what I wanted to do after consulting I, I think the, the question I asked myself was like what is 
what is unique about the things that I'm interested in and the things that I think I'm good at that maybe some of my peers aren't as good at. And so I came back to like doing technical stuff, right? And, and so that's kind of one of the things that pushed me to go back to grad school. And then the other was that I think that one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that you have a, a very limited window in your career to genuinely become like truly an expert in something. And McKinsey taught me this in kind of a negative way because like at McKinsey, there's a lot of people who the joke at McKinsey is that once you've done two projects on a subject, then you're an expert in it. Right. And, and so I, I realized that like, I, I wanted to actually build my career from a place of like genuinely being an expert in something. So that's kind of the other reason I decided to go back to grad school. And is there, you said that you had noticed that you were maybe better than your peers at the technical things, but so did you go into it as just trying to do pure computer science and then stumbled upon machine learning later, or did you have machine learning in mind from the very start? It, it wasn't so much that I noticed my peers that I was better at than my peers, because it's just technical skills aren't really important as a consultant. It's, it was more mm -hmm. just that, uh, you know, that I'd spent so much time in undergrad, like doing math and like, and learning that stuff. And so I think, but, and that was a very different background than what most other consultants had. Obviously there's a lot of other people that were way better at, at, uh, at math and stuff like that than me. But no, so when I, when I applied to grad school, it was, it was really just on this idea that I want to go, I, I spent so much time learning math, but I never actually learned any useful math. And so I, I decided I wanted to write that wrong. So I applied to schools that had strong math programs and also strong engineering and science. And the idea was that I was going to find something to apply math to. And so I, I didn't really know that it was going to be computer science. I think I had a vague idea that maybe machine learning would be interesting. I remember also thinking a lot about computational biology and other types of like mathematical modeling. But when I, when I got to campus at Berkeley, there was just so much excitement around machine learning. It was just, this is in 2015. And, and I think it was like kind of just starting to catch on in the outside world that like there was something really, really crazy happening in machine learning. But at Berkeley, it was just in the air. It was really, it was really palpable that this, this was the field that, mm -hmm. that everyone should spend time in. And it was across campus, right? It was like not just the machine learning teams, but, or the machine learning groups, but it was also the systems groups and the applied math people. And so I think that's part of why I gravitated towards it. And then the other part was just, I, I spent a good part of my first semester just exploring taking a, a wide variety of classes, you know, dropping in on classes and things like that. And there was uh, the, the, the class that really hooked me was the class with my future advisor, Peter Reveal, on kind of intersection of machine learning and robotics. And so, you know, once I, once I spent a bunch of time doing that and getting into that, then it, that's kind of when it became clear that that's what I wanted to focus on. Mm -hmm. And of course, robotics has its own suite of challenges in addition to, in addition to the machine learning part of it. Was that, were those challenges really exciting to you specifically because it's, uh, you're using machine learning to interact with the real world? Yeah, I think it wasn't, I didn't know enough to know how the challenges in robotics were different than machine learning broadly at the time. I think the thing that appealed to me was really two things, right? So one, as I started to learn more about the field of robotics, I realized that there's, robotics has been, the history of robotics has been kind of like history of sort of repeated disappointment in that the, the field every 10 years or so is like making new promises and people get excited about a new approach that is going to put robots in everyone's homes. But 
it's never really quite lived up to that. And robots have never become as ubiquitous as everyone thinks that they're going to become. And so one of the things that really appealed to me about it is that from a pretty, pretty naive place of not really understanding this stuff super well, it just seemed like the approach that, that some of the folks at Berkeley were taking, deep reinforcement learning, deep learning and machine learning more broadly, had a le- legitimate shot at sort of ups, upsetting that norm, right? And becoming mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. technology that'll actually change that and create ubiquitous robots. So that was really exciting to me. And then the other thing that was really exciting to me is that thinking about machine learning more broadly, right? And coming you know, from having spent a couple of years in the business world, working with older companies, bigger companies, companies that aren't like where the building technology is not really um, the core of what they do. It was just so apparent to me that this machine learning thing, right? If it can do all the stuff that people in the field say it can do, then this is just going to have such a profound impact on those types of companies, right? It was going to change the way that they serve their customers and the way that they operate internally, like to the same degree that that software did. And so the the broader impact of of machine learning as a field was all, was the other thing that that I got really excited about. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that the field of robotics has had its up and downs, of course, and we all know that there were numerous AI winters as well, some correlated and some not. Do you think that we're about to see another one or do you think that it is here to stay? No, I don't think that we're going to see another AI winter soon. I think there's, so I I do think that there's a possibility that there will be a cooling of the hype a little bit, but I think that machine learning AI has gotten to the point where it's, it's proven that it's valuable in a, in an enterprise setting. And so I think that this, if there's a downturn coming up, then this downturn will look really different than the previous AI winters. I think that there's also a possibility there won't be a downturn because there's a lot of areas in the research world that are still accelerating really quickly. And mm-hmm. I'd, point to, I'd point to NLP as sort of maybe the most obvious yeah. one. But I think that there's, there's a possibility that that'll kind of continue to drive excitement around the field. And I think there's also a possibility that people, companies that got really excited about AI back in 2015, 2016, 2017, are starting to kind of think about whether the you know big investments that they made in building machine learning teams are you know really worth it at this point, and they're getting the ROI that they were promised that they were going to get out of out of those investments, and and so I think that that dynamic will change the field, but I don't think that it'll it'll destroy it. Yeah, and as will talk about later in this episode the it does seem like those investments if they those companies can assemble the right teams and put these production processes in place and actually make products with them then it's only then that those investments can pay off and but we've seen how many teams have had not failures specifically but uh, not as successful as they could be but that's for later in the episode to go back to your phd in 2017 was this when you started to work also with OpenAI with specifically their robotics as it relates to deep reinforcement learning? Let me think. I guess I started there in 2016 and you know, as an intern, and then I joined full-time in 2017. Mm-hmm. And you would realize that the one of the biggest problems, at least, was in the data collection aspect of in terms of how to get machine learning to map into robotics problems. And you published a paper in 2017, uh, or co-authored it, with the concept of domain randomization. So can you talk about the origin of that research idea, as well as what it eventually turned into? 
one thing that one thing that you're supposed to do as a researcher that very few people I think actually do, and they're not maybe not through any fault of their own, but through some of the incentives of the field. But one of the things that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to think about what are what are the most important problems in your field and why aren't you working on them? Right. And I think I was I was naive enough in 2016 and 2017 to take that advice seriously. And so I, I was working in this this field, this kind of emerging field of deep reinforcement learning for robotics. Right. And again, the thing that's exciting about it is that one of the reasons robotics is so hard is that it's like really, really hard to program robots. It's, it's hard to it's hard to get them to, you know, to specify exactly what behavior they need to do in order to like perform an action, right? Because it, it's all in the 3D world. Objects are complex and hard to describe. And so the, the the thing that's exciting about deep reinforcement learning is that you can just specify what you want the robot to do in a very, very abstract and high level way, right? You get some reward if you pick up this cup, if the, if the position of the cup goes above 10 centimeters. And so that's an exciting idea because it, it could totally change the way that people program robots. And so I, I was working in this field and I was trying to think about this question of what what is what are potential blockers, right? If this doesn't work, what are the reasons why it might not work? And the thing that just, the thing that sort of became clear to me was that like one of the, the biggest challenge I would argue of applying deep reinforcement learning to robotics is that when you, when you look at the success stories of deep reinforcement learning and really deep learning more broadly, they all rely on having massive amounts of data and in particular, massive amounts of labeled data, or in the case of reinforcement learning data that has some reward signal that's associated with it. But in robotics, that's a big challenge, right? Because robots are pretty expensive and they break and they can be dangerous. And so just going out and collecting a a massive amount of data on robots is not the easiest thing to do. And so there's, there's a bunch of different approaches you could take to alleviating that problem, right? Like you could make reinforcement learning more efficient. You could just, you can brute force it. Like you can buy a bunch of robots and collect a ton of data. But the, the thing that seemed to me like it could make the biggest difference if it worked would be to use simulated data, right? Because if you can use simulated data, then your, you, your data basically has zero marginal cost, right? So once you build the simulation, then you get data from that simulation for free and you get labels from the simulation for free as well, right? You design the world, you put all the objects in it, so you know where everything is. But the challenge is that simulated, at least historically, simulated data for robotics had a very... Uh, negative rap, I would say. Like the, 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 the classic story was like, like the, the, the fundamental reason is that you can never build a perfect simulation, right? There's always some gap between how things work in the simulation and the real world. And so traditionally, when people try to use simulation, you get results that don't really transfer to the real world. So 2016, early 2017, I was working on, what I really wanted to do is like up, explore domain adaptation techniques for using simulated data to train robots that could do tasks in the real world, right? So, and just for, for background, domain adaptation techniques are, are essentially where you have, you train a model on data from one domain and you want to adapt it to data from a second domain. And there's a variety of like machine learning and statistical techniques that you can use to, to adapt robots behavior using some often unlabeled data, smaller amount of data from the actual domain that you care about. Once you've trained, once you've pre-trained it on the, the domain where you actually have access to data, so that's that's really what I was thinking about. That's what I was excited about writing a paper about. But I was I was, I was kind of I was doing the literature review, I was reading through 
what other people had tried. And I just felt, I felt like people weren't really using the right baseline in those papers. And because like most of the time when people um, wrote papers on this subject, they, the, the thing that they've compared to is you create a simulation, you generate data from that simulation, you train on that data, and then you just try your model in the real world. So it's like data from a single best simulation. Mm-hmm. And my feeling at the time was like, that's, that's, that's a garbage baseline, right? Obviously that's not going to work. It's one simulation that the data from the simulation doesn't represent the real world. And so, so the thinking was like, the right baseline would be you randomize the simulations, you generate data from a bunch of simulations, and then you have a much better tra- chance of transferring because you might, like you'll capture a lot more of the, the, the variability and the difference between the real world and the simulation. And so what I, was, what I was really trying to do when I started working on that paper was like, do the baseline experiment for the later paper I was going to write on domain adaptation. And what ended up happening was that like two weeks into to working on this, this baseline, all of a sudden I had started to see signs that things were actually transferring. Mm-hmm. And I had a bunch of other ideas about like how to make the, the simulation better. And so I just doubled down on that and I added more randomizations and I, I added more, more variability in the simulation. And then eventually one, I, like I remember going to the office, I remember getting, getting a model, like it was like late on a Friday night. And I had this like small data set that I'd collected to, to benchmark the transfer performance, right? Like trained on my simulation. And then I have this like benchmark data, data set that I did spend a bit, a bit of time labeling. And so I would, I would test the transfer performance. And I remember it was like late one Friday night. I was like, I finally got like performance on that benchmark data set that meant that in theory, the robot should be able to solve the task. Mm-hmm. I was like so excited. It was like 2 a.m. I woke up at like 8 a.m. on Saturday ran into the office and tried this thing on the robot and it worked. So that, that was kind of the story of that paper. It was, it was a really unusual research experience in the sense that almost every other research project that I worked on, the story was a lot more like, we have an idea that we're like certain it's going to work, but then it takes months in order to actually figure out all the details that's re- mm-hmm. that are required to, to even get it to work at all. And this was kind of the one case where I was like, something was just like way easier than I expected it to be. I think that's part of why, why that technique has has gained a lot of popularity just because it, it's really simple and it, it's pretty easy to set up and it just works well. And it's honestly hard to beat. Yeah. And it totally makes intuitive sense when you think about it in terms of just making your model more robust to the various environmental conditions. Was it when you were looking through the existing literature, did you did it just strike you all of a sudden that this was what you should try? Or was it some idea that percolated over a period of time? No, so I think the idea came from this paper called um, blanking on the name of this paper, but it was it was a paper from 2015 from I believe one of the Israeli universities. Live repetition counting, I think is is the name of the paper. And the, the idea of that paper was they're trying to count repetitive behavior, like someone doing push-ups or something like that. And so what they did is instead of instead of labeling a bunch of data for that task, they generated basically like white noise with cyclical noise on top of it. And then they trained a model on this, these noise patterns. And then they ran it on real data. And it turns out that it was able to do counting. So that was kind of the inspiration for thinking about like randomization as a, as a way to improve transfer. And then there was another paper that came out maybe around the time that I started working on this called CAD2RL, which also used this idea of randomizing simulated environments. And so that was other, that was also like kind of confirmation that this was a thing that was worth exploring. Mm-hmm. And then after this, DeepMind released their 
the generative query network paper and and you took this and in 2018 applied domain randomization to that was that i guess can you talk a little bit about that paper as well this was actually this wasn't an application of domain randomization but the idea was like one of the big challenges in practice about domain randomization is that you have to design the the distribution of um, simulators that you sample data mm-hmm. from. And in practice, this can be like a challenging process, right? It's pretty manual. It's pretty iterative. And so the, the problem like that I was really, that I really wanted to solve was, is there an easier way to do this, right? Is there a way that we can just take a small number of data points about the environment, right? Which are in practice are often not that hard to get, right? Like you can, if you if you have a robot that's and you're trying to solve a task with that robot, you can you can you can put put cameras in and like maybe spin the cameras around the scene, get some images of it. And so the question is, can we use like a, a small number of data samples that are maybe or maybe not related to the actual task that you're trying to solve in order to generate simulations? And then if you can do that, then like maybe you can have this like real to sim to real loop, right? Mm-hmm. Where you like get a a little bit of uh, real data use that to create a simulation, randomize that simulation, use that to generate massive amount of simulated data, train your policy on that data, transfer it back to the real world, use that to capture more real world data, and then repeat. Um, Oh, okay. I see. And then in the year after that, that's when the idea of uh, ECA came from, epipolar cross-attention. Or, inter- or at least uh, you came up with the ECI idea and then applied it in addition to the to the GQNs in that sim to real, real to sim loop. I would say that that was sort of the high level idea, and then the mm-hmm. the, the actual paper uh, solving a much more constrained version of that problem, right? Which is the idea that like if you want to understand, if you want to like model a scene, like a, a real world environment, a three D environment, right? Like how do you actually represent what's in that scene? You can do it using using something like voxels you can do it using something like a mesh but those are all like not very compact representations of the scene and so it can be hard to learn a model that maps those because they're they can be very high dimensional and so the idea was that like we can learn representations of scenes in an implicit way this is really the idea from gqn right where you just take a model that um, takes as an input a few different viewpoints of a scene like cameras at different angles and then its job is to to predict what the camera would have seen from other angles. Mm. And the intuition is that if it can do that, then what it has to have learned internally is some way of representing that scene, the geometry of the scene, because otherwise it wouldn't be able to solve that task. Basically like where that paper came from was we were trying to apply that technique, GQN, to some of the computer vision tasks for the Rubik's Cube work. And it turned out that it didn't really work that well for that task. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, that's what inspired me to start working on that. And that's kind of what led to that paper. Mm -hmm. And I'm always interested in the research graveyard, as some people call it. What were some of the ideas that you really thought would work uh, on the Rubik's Cube project specifically that didn't end up working out? Oh yeah, so many. Do you have a favorite? That you thought was just so elegant, but didn't work? Nothing's jumping to mind. Yeah, I'm not... Also, not totally sure which ones I'm allowed to talk about there. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But yeah. And for the epipolar cross-attention, was this mainly work for specifically for the Rubik's Cube testing or? No, I think it was sort of inspired by 
the, the work on Ruby's Cube that was going on in the rest of the team, but it was more of kind of an independent effort that was meant to go in like a, in a complementary direction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. And I was reading your PhD thesis all about this, and you actually have some very, very good diagrams showing exactly how to, how ECA works. Not going to have you try and explain it here. That would be way too complicated. <laughs> but during this time, I guess, what does your research process kind of look like? How are you, like, how do you choose what papers to read? How are you finding these papers? How do you take notes and mal- manage the notes from that? Yeah, I don't think I had a very strict process. I think I, I think there's sort of there's like maybe two two different things that two different things that, like two different sort of processes that I recommend having for researchers when it comes to reading papers. So whatever topic you're actively working on or whatever topics you're actively working on. There I think it's good to like try to keep a pulse on what other people are doing. And so the way to do that typically is find the researchers that are, that have written about this in the past or are actively working on it and follow them on Twitter. It's basically the way to do it. You, know, you can, you can also keep an eye on archive and things like that. And, you know, for those types of papers, generally I would just kind of skim whatever came out. Most papers that come out are, aren't new enough that they should really change the research that you're doing. And so it's okay to just skim, kind of understand the main idea, understand the results but you know, occasionally a paper will come out that sort of changes the way that you think about your own research, and then it, and then it's worth like sitting down, spending a few hours, really reading it carefully, understanding it, maybe even spending a couple of days re-implementing it. So that's kind of like one process I would have going, and then the other process is like just keeping up with the field more broadly. And there, I, I think actually people, in my opinion, I don't I don't think everyone agrees with this, but I think a lot of researchers over-index on the value of that, and I think that a lot of research in ML is very trendy and trend-driven. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you can you can spend a lot of time reading papers that don't end up becoming important parts of the literature. And so mm-hmm. in terms of keeping up with the field, my recommendation is have, have some idea of what people in the field are excited about. Right. And the, maybe the best way to do that is to go to conferences. But I don't actually I I tend not to read a lot of the whatever the hot new paper on Reddit machine learning is, mm-hmm. because I think that there's there's a relatively small number of ideas in machine learning that stand the test of time. And so I, mm-hmm. I I prefer to read papers that are like outside of my direct area of interest a year or so later when someone brings them up for a third time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that you can kind of have that signal of how much was this cited since it came out and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't so much care how much it's cited. I, I think that maybe this is this is like one of the advantages of being at a place like OpenAI is that I think if... If OpenAI people are excited about it and still talking about it a year after it came out, then that's a good sign that it's that it, that it's actually an important paper. And sometimes those papers are cited a lot, and sometimes they aren't. Mm-hmm. And for someone who's not at OpenAI, how would you suggest that they uh, kind of get a sense of what would still be important? Yeah, I think you you have to like develop research taste, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to kind of build your own sense over time of what what types of papers you should pay close attention to, and I don't think that there's a better way to do that than just spending time with people that are a little bit further along in their research careers than you are. And so I think if you're not at a place where your your research is part of your job, then I would say try to try to form a reading group or join a reading group with other people or a Slack channel where people talk about research and build a model of what other people are excited about and a model in your brain and use that to start like start bootstrapping your own judgment about what papers mm-hmm. you should care about. 
yeah, that's really helpful advice. I I definitely need to start being uh, stop reading so many of the of the new papers that come out because I definitely feel like sometimes I go way too deep into them and they don't end up not being so useful. Yeah, I think I think like the more important thing is like having the thread, like the the bigger mm-hmm. picture thread, right? Like mm-hmm. understanding what people are excited about in the field, where the field is going. But I think that a lot of researchers chase trends, and chasing trends can be a good way to publish a lot of papers. But depending on what your goals are, like. I kind of think that publishing a lot of papers is overrated. I would rather I would rather publish a small number of really good papers that actually have an impact on the field than publish like a lot of a lot of more incremental ones. And I think that it's kind of it's not really an either or choice. Like sometimes publishing a lot of papers is a way to publish some good papers. But you know, as a, as a general philosophy, I think that you should like you should be thinking from first principles about like why the topic that you're working on is an important one to work on for you mm-hmm. and the type of research that you want to do and use that to guide the, the what you read and, and what you write about. Mm-hmm. And you've definitely lived out that philosophy in terms of some of those papers have 500 plus citations uh, and there's only, and I think there are only eight of them, but uh, they have been very impactful. And to wrap up this, uh, the research section, so we can get into the ML in production topic, I definitely encourage our all our listeners to go onto YouTube and search some of these robotic control and perception videos from from OpenAI. There's just the marketing team at OpenAI is really really good. They have all these videos with the different colors and angles and and on the music in the background, they're really really well done. Funny you say that. There wasn't really a marketing team at OpenAI at the time that most oh. of those were created. <laughs> uh, it was really just like one one engineer who dabbled in, in videography. So. Common, oh, really? common misconception. Yeah. Wow. That guy's really good then. He definitely has a future in that field if he wants it. He sure does. <laughs> so now to switch over to talking about the different challenges of machine learning in production, which of course is the subject of full stack deep learning, which we mentioned earlier in the episode. And the origin of that, uh, I don't really want to talk about since it was in the weights and biases episode that you did. But so listeners, definitely check that out. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, and especially, I really like the training and debugging section of this course because it you can tell that there's just so much hard-won wisdom uh, and so many hours that were put into learning these different lessons. Hmm. And I like how you break it down uh, into like the most common problems and... Uh, what the most common reasons for those problems are and then how to f- figure out which one exactly is uh, the right one. It's a very uh, consultant-esque way of uh, looking at the problem. <laughs> so to start broad in terms of this big topic, there's a stat that 80% of ML projects, maybe even more, never make it into production. So why is that process so much more difficult? Yeah, I, so I, I spent a lot of time trying to understand this sort of like beginning of this this year. And I talked to a bunch of like full stack deep learning alums and other people in the field. And I think as you'd imagine, there's a bunch of reasons, right? So one reason is that there's still there's still a talent shortage in ML. So it's it there's ML as it is now is a relatively young field. And so there's a limited number of people that know how to do it, and an even smaller number of people that know how to do it and have done it in production before. So I think that like one thing is just that as more and more of these projects do succeed and do get to maturity, there'll be 
you know, more of a critical mass of people that, that know how to put ML into production. So that's kind of one reason. Another reason is that there's still, in a lot of organizations, there's still organizational blockers to, to putting ML into production. So in a lot of companies, even if there's like high level buy-in that AI is important, that machine learning is important, there's maybe a lack of understanding of what problems it should actually be applied to, where it works, where it doesn't work, what the timelines are and the, the, the budget that's required to actually making these projects succeed. And so in a lot of cases, especially at some um, bigger companies, the, the organization itself is maybe not really ready yet to, to do production ML. Maybe their data infrastructure isn't that mature yet, for example. I think another really big blocker, and this is sort of, I, I don't think we would have articulated this way at the time, but this is part of what we we're trying to do with, with full stack deep learning is that there's, if you, if you, as an organization decide that you want to build some software, right, there's kind of like a, a playbook that you can run to do that, right? You can, you can read about agile, right? You can hire people who are experts in that, in that methodology. You can, there's pretty clear role descriptions for software engineers. You can, you can, you know, you can, you know, sort of what to look for in hiring. You can put that team together and then you can really easily sort of measure their progress over time, you know, running sprints, like seeing, seeing what, what, what gets solved each week. But in, in machine learning and in production machine learning in particular, the, the methodology is a lot less mature. And in particular, there's a lot of overlap between building production machine learning systems and building production software, but there's a lot of di- like key differences as well. Some of those differences are that in production ML, right? Like that your data is like really as important as code. And so you need to, you need to treat it like code in the sense that it needs to be version controlled, needs to be like reviewed and sort of thought about pretty carefully, but like the, the tools and processes for doing that are not super uh, mature yet. And also the, yeah, where was I going with this? Differences between software and uh, ML. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like another big difference is the, the, you can't, you can't apply the same project management mentality to ML mm. as, as you do to software. So in, in software, it's kind of like when I'm like writing software code, right? I don't know. When I, when I, when I have an idea and I like try to implement something, I have a pretty, pretty high success rate. I'm not the yeah. world's best software engineer. So it's not always as fast as I would like it to be. But if I, if I think something's possible and I try it, I don't know, maybe 80%, 90% of the time I'm able to do it maybe even more, but in machine learning, it's kind of the opposite, right? Like yeah. in, in machine learning, like when you have an idea of something that you think will improve your, your model, even for like really, really good people, like machine learning practitioners, it's not just for beginners, right? Maybe like 80 or 90% of the time that you try something, it doesn't work. Right? And so that actually has like pretty profound um, impacts on how you need to do project management for ML, right? Because if you try to measure people based on their outcomes, on a weekly basis, let's say, on a, or on a biweekly basis, it's just gonna it's just gonna fail and cause frustration. We sort of learned this the hard way at OpenAI when we had when we started to have like software and machine learning teams work together. When it was like, okay, machine learning researchers try to say like what they're gonna get done each week, and then like you come back a week later and it's like the software folks, you know, they're like, okay, I was gonna do A, B, and C. I did A and B, ran into some issues with C. It was like harder than I expected. I think I'm gonna get it done this week. And then the machine learning folks would be like, yeah, I was going to like do A, B, and C, but then 
I did A and it like kind of didn't really work. And so then it gave me this other idea for D. And then I wasn't really as excited about B and C anymore. And so I started working on D, but it was like really hard. And so I, I realized I needed to do E first. And so now I'm working on E. And it was like, from a project management perspective, what do you do with that? Does that mean that they're, they're not following a discipline process? And so I think that figuring out the right strategy for, for managing machine learning projects and communicating timelines, figuring out how much budget to give them and helping like teams work together on machine learning projects to work together, to, to move faster is like the right methodology is just not understood yet. So that's, that's another big barrier I think is methodology. And then the, the last thing I would point to is tooling, right? So w- one of the core challenges in production ML is that production ML is it's, it's a team sport, right? It's a team sport in the sense that there are very, very few people in the world that know how to do all the different things that you need to do in order to build a production ML system, right? So think about what goes into a production ML system. You need a pretty robust data engineering pipeline, right? You need to get data from, from you know, point A to point B, you need to transform it. You need to do that at scale. It needs to be robust, reliable. Then you need people who are really good at building machine learning models and figuring out like what the right model is to fit this data, like sort of the traditional ML skill set. But those people can't really work quickly unless they have infrastructure around them to you know make sure that they can manage experiments, they can um, do distributed training, they can run hyperparameter sweeps. And then once the models have been trained, then they need to be productionized, right? And so then you need folks that know how to take machine learning models, turn them into you know, scalable production systems, who can set up monitoring for them, who can make sure that the, there are like re- repeatable pipelines for those things to be retrained. And at each of those, you'd think that there's maybe there's four or five like jobs that you need to have in order to build a production ML pipeline, which is, itself is challenging. But the even more challenging thing is that all of those all those pieces are like very tightly coupled with each other. Mm-hmm, so those folks mm-hmm. need to work really, really closely together. And, and so because of that, I think a big place where a lot of companies fall down is in the, the gaps between those between the, the those different sort of disciplines that are all required. Right. It's like data engineering and ML. When they're separate teams, there's a lot of friction between how they work together. ML and infra. Again, if they're separate teams. They might not have the same goals. They might not think about their world the same way. ML and DevOps, same story. So like the reason why I sort of frame this as a tooling problem is that I think in a lot of other areas of software engineering, let's call it, the way that these types of problems are solved, like these these problems at the intersection of different teams is through tooling, right? Like you have a tool that allows SRE and software engineering to work closely together. You have a tool that allows products and design to work closely together. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like sort of the big missing part of the the tooling stack in ML right now is the tools that allow all these different disciplines that need to come together in order to do production ML to to interact with each other in a in sort of a low friction and uh, repeatable way. And I think really like the direction that the field needs to move in is if you think about who the core like the core sort of value creator in the machine learning tool chain is it's like, it's kind of, it's like the people who are building models, right? That's kind of, that's the core thing that, that needs to happen to make machine learning work. And so I think the, the other missing piece is that I think the tooling needs to be more oriented towards helping those folks um, take more ownership over the rest of the pipeline, the data engineering part, the infrastructure part, the deployment, monitoring, retraining, 
part as well. Yeah, that's such an interesting insight uh, into the fact that the pooling really has been there in previous processes, well-known processes for bridging those gaps between teams or functional units. And I think an additional complexity on top of all of this is that with ML, like you said, they're, they're so tightly coupled together where the end of the pipeline does need to connect back to the very start of that pipeline. If you're doing continuous data engineering, that affects like the monitoring all the way down the line. And it gets even worse once you add in the fact that once you, like if your data changes or you have to remove data early on in the pipeline, that has to change everything downstream of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and changes like if you have, if you have handoffs between a bunch of different teams, then changes in one part of the pipeline take are, are fraught with difficulty as they like move through the different teams that, that they affect. Yeah. And so do you think because of this need for, can't think of the right word, but because it is so connected, do you think that the future of the ML ops landscape looks like one end-to-end tool that everyone else integrates with, or or it has maybe that Unix philosophy where there's clear means of interoper of uh, interoperability? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think I think it's somewhere in between those two things, right? So I think um, the problem with end-to-end tools is that they don't really give you generally as a general rule they don't give you best in breed for any one part of of the, of the landscape. And I think that for a lot of parts of the landscape, like some of the people on the team want to, and should be using best of breed tools. And so the, the way I think about that is if your, if your day job is to like, if the, the core thing that you're good at is to do X, then you should be like really, really opinionated about the tools that you use to do X, right? So for, for machine learning engineers, right? If, if your day, jo- day job is, let's say, just, let's just pick machine learning researchers as sort of like an easier example, right? Like your day job is like implementing and trying out a bunch of new machine learning architectures, then you should be really, really opinionated about which training framework you use. And most mm-hmm. machine learning researchers are like, that's kind of why a big part of the driver of popularity of um, PyTorch and like even more recently JAX. But I think if you're a machine learning researcher, right? Like you probably don't care that much about distributed training frameworks or about hyperparameter optimization frameworks. Maybe you can kind of treat those things as more of a black box because that's like a little bit further outside of the core of what you do. And even if part of your job is to, to somehow deploy the models that you produce, which for some machine learning researchers is part of their job, you probably like really, really don't care about what tool you use to deploy those models. Like mm-hmm. you're kind of fine with whatever's like easy to do and sort of gets the job done so that, so you can get that part off of your plate. And so that's kind of how I think about granularity of tools. So end-to-end tools like are good for some, are good for teams that like, where let's say that you have a machine learning is just really not core to what you do, but you have a small machine learning team, that machine learning team needs to be like very, like very agile, very quick. Like they need to, they need to be like spending the maximum amount of time working on models, the minimum amount of time thinking about infrastructure and things like that. And you're okay. Not, not having best in breed on the other side of the spectrum, like the, the Unix philosophy, like if you are like a core, core machine learning company and like what you do is train and ship models, then you should probably build your own infrastructure and pick and choose the parts of the tooling stack that make the most sense for the particular problems that you're trying to solve and the particular preferences of the people that you have on the team. But for most companies that will end up somewhere in between, I think it's it's a matter of choosing tools at the right granularity for how your team is organized and what types of problems you're trying to solve. And then looking at the 
looking at the landscape right now, obviously there are tools at multiple levels of of granularity. Where are you seeing the so like you mentioned the four state or there's more than that, but uh, high level stages of data engineering and then modeling, uh, deployment, monitoring, possibly retraining automation associated with that. What are you seeing the biggest gaps or opportunities in terms of software? Yeah, I think I don't want to go into too much details there because that's that's sort of related to to the company that I'm working on. But I, I would say like at a very high level, I think the ecosystem for for training models, like for building machine learning models is getting really, really good. And everyone wants to work on like training frameworks and like ways of making the research process, like the process of building new models easier. And I think that the the sort of corner of the ecosystem where there are the most gaps is like everything that happens after you have a trained model, right? So the deployment, productionization, monitoring, retraining, data management side of things. So that's kind of, that's that's the broad part of the, the ecosystem that we're focused on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you mentioned in your answer before that, that it really is dependent on uh, the tools you choose. It really are dependent on your org structure, what the what the goal is. So if you were a, if you were someone at a, an organization choosing the tools, so let's say that you're a, an ML for ML for X startup. Yeah. What tools in the current landscape would you use? It's, it's really hard to say because it just depends a lot on like how you're trying to construct your team, like what stage you're at. I mean, I think, yeah, it, it's just too hard to give general recommendations there. Um, yeah. And perhaps that's even part of the broader point of it, of why it's so difficult because it depends on so many different things. Mm-hmm. So it, to reframe slightly, what do you see most teams or companies doing, say, egregiously wrong in terms of putting into production or how could they make their lives easier? Yeah. I think, so I'll mention two things. One is, I think a really common attitude in the machine learning world historically has been like, let's get this model into production and then see what happens. (laughs) And I think that more and more companies are starting to have stories about like when they did that and then it caused some like really big issue, like some multi-million dollar outage or problem. The challenge is that like, as soon as you start to rely on that model, then you need to be really, really careful about the data that it, that model is seeing in production. Because if that data no longer matches the assumptions that it's trained on, then you're going to have a bad time. And so I think thinking upfront, at least about how you're going to know how, whether that model is still performing well is really important and is like super, super underrated in the production ML, ML mm. world right now. Really, and the, the types of things that can go wrong, right? Degradations in performance, but also just like types types of bias in the model's predictions that you mm. didn't think carefully enough about in advance, but maybe could have predicted. And I think at a high level, like the in, in my opinion, sort of the most most principled way to think about that is through testing. So I think testing of machine learning models is also, is also super under invested in at this stage. So that's, that's kind of like one category of mistakes is just not thinking carefully enough about, okay, my validation score is good. So what, right? Does that actually mean my model is good? Or does that just mean that 
my validation score is good, and but there's some other weird quirk in my model's performance that will cause it to degrade over time, or that is just is a blind spot in how I'm in how I'm evaluating the model right now. Second sort of category of things that I see a lot is companies that look at the infrastructure landscape, right? They see, as you pointed out, like all of these different options for tools, um, end-to-end tools, individual tools, and maybe they look at some of the end-to-end tools and they decide that like none of those really meet their needs. And so they just decide, they go like fully extreme in the other direction and decide to completely build their own. And I think this is like a classic mistake that a lot of organizations make in general, but building machine learning infrastructure is like really hard for all the reasons that we, that we've, that we've already talked about. And so I think that if it's not your core competency to build infrastructure, you probably should think carefully about whether you really should be investing in that. It will just end up being more expensive than you think. And then your infrastructure is not going to be state of the art and then you're going to be saddled with maintaining it. And you're just going to have this like constant cost of, of maintaining that infrastructure, which is hard in ML because all the pieces that you're building on are moving so quickly. Right. Tensor, like the, the underlying frameworks even are still evolving really quickly. So that's kind of the second category of mistakes I'd point out is over-indexing on like building your own tools and infrastructure. Yeah, what, what a fantastic answer. Those are definitely two huge pain points that, that I'm experiencing in, in my work right now as a machine learning engineer. As a startup founder, you have a, you use your imagination and project into the future where you think uh, things are going to be. Like what, what is the dream for the ML ops? landscape if you're a company and it's okay you can use these tools and they all work together super well what does that look like well i'm i'm not going to like directly answer that question but i think that the i i think that the way that people are going to build machine learning systems is going to look really different in 5 or 10 years than it looks right now i think that right now there's tons of moving pieces and there's an emphasis on modeling right and like People, people think of like modeling as kind of the hard part. Most people who have done it think of like data as the hard part, but like modeling is sort of the part that gets a lot of attention. And I think that what's going to happen, what's, what's happening right now is that in most branches of ML, it's becoming less and less necessary to be an expert in order to do the modeling piece. Yeah. Right. So a, f- a few trends that are working towards that one, like the software frameworks are getting more mature. Right. So when I started doing ML, if you wanted to train a neural network, you were like either trying to upgrade, trying to like mess around with CUDA drivers and install Cafe or like maybe implementing stuff from scratch or like you were trying to use Theano and you had to read papers to try to find like what the right hyperparameters were. Now you have uh, libraries like FastAI, like Keras, that kind of just do the right thing out of the box, right? And so a lot of the like expertise around that sort of thing is becoming less and less necessary. Second trend that's kind of working in that favor AutoML sort of feels like it's maybe actually starting to become useful. I was kind of bearish on AutoML for a long time because it it just it always seemed really like the, the time that you would actually want to use AutoML is if you already had state of the art performance and you wanted to spend a bunch of money to beat your own state of the art performance. Like in, Google was doing it and like no one else for it didn't really make that much sense for ever, anyone else. But I think AutoML systems have come a long way and I think that they'll continue to get a lot better. Third trend that's kind of working in that favor is maturity of a lot of the subfields of ML, right? So again, 2015, 2014, if you're doing computer vision and you wanted to keep up with state-of-the-art, you basically had to implement a new continent architecture every six months, maybe even more frequently than that. 
nowadays, like most people who are doing computer vision, use something that looks like ResNet and it's basically good enough for yeah. unless you're like really, really pushing limits or you have performance constraints. And I think a lot of subfields of ML are sort of going through a similar maturation where it's, you don't like architecture selection doesn't really matter as much anymore. There's like an architecture that's simple, easy to get right and works almost as well as state of the art. And you can kind of just rely on that. And then fourth trend that's, that is like pushing the world in that direction is, and this is one that I've changed my mind about in the past six months or so is like maturation of what I would call like mega APIs. And the, the sort of the main example here is, is GPT-3, right? And I think that like the surprising thing to me about GPT-3, even having seen like internal language model versions when I left OpenAI like a year ago, was how general purpose it is, right? Like how many, how, how broad a range of tasks you could, you could use it to solve. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like right now, very few ML use cases for uh, a relatively small, small chunk of those are, are done using APIs because just generally APIs are sort of like one size fits all. And it's like never quite good enough for the actual task that you want to solve. But I think that one of the dynamics in ML is that people still underestimate the returns to scale that you get from just being willing to spend more money on compute and data to build a mm-hmm. bigger model. And so I think that like an increasing chunk of ML use cases are just going to be like, there'll be like five or six APIs for different like categories of tasks. And it won't make sense to train your own thing from scratch. You're basically just going to, you're basically going to fine tune one of those models. And so I think all of those four trends are sort of pushing the field toward it being a lot easier for non-experts to train models. And like the training of models, I think is becoming more and more democratized. And so if you think about the implication that that's going to have on the field as a whole, well, the, the thing that you'll actually, let's say you don't need to think about training models at all, right? Then how do you create a good production ML system? You still need to think about data engineering and infrastructure and stuff like that. But really the core thing that you need to do infrastructure aside is like this process of creating better and better data sets to train those models on over time. The data set is going to be your proprietary information. Mm-hmm. That piece of it is going to become more and more important. And so I think the way that like the way that building machine learning systems is going to work in 10 years is that you're going to have a piece of software that you that you interface with as like a model developer. And what you're going to actually spend your time doing in that piece of software is like data curation, right? Like you're going to be looking at the production data that comes in. You're going to be like trying to understand how well your model is performing. You're going to be like trying to emphasize different parts of that data landscape that you should put more effort into data collection, labeling, training, and you're going to be kind of like guiding the model in the right direction to improve its performance over time. But everything else, like the training piece and the infrastructure piece um, is going to be more or less taken care of for you. Um, not 100%, like you'll still need to have infrastructure folks that you can that can build new features for you, that you can consult with. Modelers will still be important because they'll still have, they should still have a say, I think, in what what architectures are getting selected. But I think most of the work is going to be done by a sort of what I would call like a model operator, which is mm-hmm. not really a job that exists right now outside of like maybe a handful of like very progressively thinking self-driving car companies. But I think it's going to become more and more common. That's so fascinating, especially just thinking about those APIs. It, it, when I think about it, it really is clear that that is where things tend to be going because of how big these things are. Mm-hmm. You, you really can't democratize something that costs $12 million to train. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't think that'll be anywhere near 100% of ML use cases mm-hmm. anytime soon, but I think that like that slice of the pie is going to grow over time. Mm-hmm. And so 
with that in mind, how does that, what does that mean for the skills that one would want to develop going into the future as an MLE? Focus on data. Understanding data in your, your domain, understanding how to evaluate models on that data. You should learn about the other pieces of the field. You should learn about data engineering. You should learn about distributed systems, about infrastructure. I think the focus should be on like learning a domain and learning, and in particular, learning like the techniques that you can use for data in that domain really well. Hmm, interesting. And then speaking of domains, what is there a particular application of ML that you feel is underexploited or? Yeah, I mean, robotics is, is one, obviously. Like it's one that I'm still really excited about. But I think that one, one that I would bring up that's I think is maybe more underrated is uh, search. I think hmm. the, the impact of machine learning on search is going to be like really profound. And I'm not sure that everyone realizes that yet. Can you expand more on that? Yeah, I think like if you, if you think about the search problem, what you're what are you trying to do, right? You're trying like someone writes a query, and then you're trying to like infer from that query of all the data in your data set, like on the internet. What do people like? What do people most want to see from that data? You can use techniques like PageRank, and those are good heuristics. But like ultimately, what you really need to do in order to solve this problem really well is to have some sort of semantic understanding of all the information that you're indexing. And I think that that's what, that's exactly what like really powerful machine learning models should allow you to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I was just coming across a, or I had just come across a, one of those, yeah, mega APIs that is trying to do search for where you give it a knowledge graph and then it can find anything in natural language. And wow, that's, very interesting. I'm definitely going to have to set aside time to think about that more. And you already mentioned that you obviously find robotics interesting. Outside of robotics, do you think that there are research areas that you think should be more invested in? Or do you think that the opportunity in engineering is just so big that that should be? I, I kind of, I voted with my with my feet when I decided to <laughs> focus more on the engineering side. Yeah, there's, there's definitely research topics that are underexplored. When you think about like fundamental blockers for the field, if, if the goal of the field of AI is to produce AGI, right? Like one, one of the big blockers in my mind is like reasoning or like extrapolation, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to do well on data that you, where you don't have an analog in your training set. And it's really, really hard. I'm not sure that there, maybe there are ideas in that direction, but there's very little convincing evidence that we know how to do it yet. And so that's probably one thing I would be thinking about. And then I think maybe this is more like less non-consensus now, but because unsupervised learning, semi-supervised learning are starting to work really well. But uh, yeah, I, I still think that like unsupervised and semi-supervised learning are going to be maybe bigger parts of how people do machine learning than most people outside of the research world realize right now. Because in a lot of, in a lot of ML use cases, the bottleneck is really not data collection, it's data labeling. And so being able to take advantage of massive amounts of unlabeled data, I think will will transform the field. Interesting. How would you approach, uh, just unrelated question to that, but how would you approach for like a, a new grad, relatively new grad like me, how would you approach getting better at the engineering aspects of putting things into production other than full stack deep learning, of course? I would just try it. Yeah, I would, I would just try to do it. 
Yep, just the experience. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting close to the to the time uh, constraint here. So I'll start to wrap this up and move on to the rapid fire questions. Okay. The first of which is, how do you recharge outside of work? Yeah, I would say long, long walks around the city. I like playing chess. I like I like to travel when it's when it's possible. Less so recently, obviously. What's your favorite place you've been to? Favorite place I've been to? I was in Japan around a year ago, and that was a that was a pretty amazing place to travel to. Mm, awesome, yeah. My family is planning a trip very soon to to back to Korea, and we'll hit Japan along the way. So I'm very excited for that. Next question: What book or books? Do you most often recommend to other people? Could be technical or non-technical. Well, I, I guess like maybe two books that I've liked a lot recently, and I, I guess I've been recommending. One is building data-intensive applications, mm-hmm. which is like one of the better written and articulated technical books that I've ever read, and covers a lot of these like important the the concepts behind some of these like data engineering things that. I think people should understand to to do production ML well. I also really liked Creative Selection, which is a book about how Apple builds software, essentially. Oh, really? Haven't heard of that. I'll definitely have to check that one out. Next question is, how big of an existential risk is AGI? I would say not big in the near term. And then long term, it just really depends on how careful we are in building it. Do you think that there should be more AI safety investment and researchers? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to say because I think that, yes, yes, I think there should be. I think, look, like AI safety is not only a, a near-term or not only a long-term consideration, but also I think if you do it the right way, it should have implications for how people are doing machine learning now. So yeah, I think, I think it's underexplored. Mm-hmm. And last of these, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I, I would say like the value of starting over. Hmm, interesting. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I think a lot of people are afraid to start over on things. Like small, smaller things like starting over and writing this essay that you're trying to write. Or bigger things like starting over in, in your career. I think that it's it's scary to start over because it feels like you're taking a step back. But the you never really lose what you did before so i think that can allow you to move a lot faster in whatever you're trying to do next Mm -hmm. and i know i said that was the last question but i just thought of this one and we have a little bit of time what non-technical advice would you give to someone who's just starting in their career in ml i would say specialize sooner than you think Hmm. pick something that pick a part of the field that you really care about that you feel like is underrated and don't give up like trying to be a generalist and learn a bunch of things, but start, start pushing in that direction. Start, start trying to make a mark. And uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's technical advice. I'm not sure. But um, do you think, do you think there's still room for uh, someone who's a uh, generalist in like being able to do all parts of, uh, of the general pipeline? Yeah, I think so. I think there will always be room for, for folks like that, but I think that that's just, you're going to be competing a lot if you do that. If you want to be the best generalist, then there's like a lot of other people that want to be the best generalist. And, you know, if you specialize earlier, if you pick something, a subject that you're really passionate about and you start making a mark in that direction, it doesn't preclude your ability from doing to do other stuff, but 
it proves that you can go deeper than other people have gone in a particular part of the ML world. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. This is something that I'm actively wrestling with in, in my own career. So I'll have to think about that a lot more. Definitely. So where can people find you online if they want to? You can find me on Twitter and then you can also check out the course that we've been talking a lot about full stack deep learning. It's a course.fullstackdeeplearning.com. It's free and hopefully it'll be useful. Mm -hmm. And you're starting something new. Is there a, when do you think what we the general public would be able to learn more about that. I don't know. Whenever it's ready, I think you're just going to have to wait and see. <laughs> well, good luck on that endeavor. Starting a startup obviously is very difficult. And thank you so much for being on the show. This was a really, really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Mm -hmm.